21 minutes it is after 7 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, we take a look at uh, the latest out in the capital markets in the world of business. And uh, joining me on the line is Akonam Lamleli, a portfolio manager out at uh, 27.4. And uh, yeah, Akona, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening, Ayabonga, to the listeners this evening. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Gepile Agwesis. No, much better. Thank you for having me. Okay. So, so my colleague here earlier on was quite shocked uh, when I said to him, one of the biggest shareholders of Standard Bank, and I think many people know Standard Bank, recognizable brand, been around for more than, mm. what, more than 150 years now, I think, uh, here in South Africa, um, and one of the more recognizable banking brands. But their biggest shareholder is the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, uh, which mm. uh, I understand is a state-owned bank in China. Because uh, as long as debates, guess now, South Africa of a state bank and and so on. But um, I, I mentioned that because I guess we saw some banking data coming out of China. Uh, also, f- this follows hot on the heels of a reduction in lending rates in China. There's a cons- uh, mm. consumer mortgage boycott, uh, and maybe just explain to us, Kanya Kanya, when's it in the financial sector in China? Because many people are saying this is probably China's 2007-8 moment. What what is leading to this? Yeah, so as you indicated, um, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China is one of the big four state-owned banks um, that is currently um, in China. Mm. Um, the other three include the Agricultural Bank, um, they've also got a Construction Bank, um, and also um, and other state banks that they currently have. But in terms of what's been happening, um, particularly China's Central Bank um, has called on the bigger state banks to increase lending um, to support particularly the world's second largest economy in China, um, which has obviously year-to-date suffered, the economy has suffered due to the COVID-19 lockdowns that did take place um, earlier this year. So um, the central bank governor, um, Ying Yang, indicated that the People's Bank of China, particularly yesterday, um, asked state banks to take the lead, particularly in stabilizing the Chinese economy, and step up credit, particularly to small businesses um, and other green industries, and such as the tech sector. Um, so the central bank asking these lenders just to guarantee um, a reasonable financing um, demand for China, particularly the property sector um, that has come under significant pressure um, post-2020 um, that has obviously been affected. Um, mm. Also, the People's Bank of China indicating that also asking the policy banks to just also step up support, um, particularly with regards to the property sector, to support these infrastructure projects, um, such as the internet infrastructure, um, some of the rural infrastructure projects that they currently are taking place, particularly in the sector. So, yeah, the Italian economy um, particularly struggling um, year-to-date um, with the central bank obviously asking these state banks to intervene. And... Um, why are they asking um, the state banks to intervene rather than the private commercial banks? Um, it's because these state banks um, have the ability to offer loans to developers um, and obviously shift um, the lending from mortgages to the big infrastructure loans, um, whilst um, the private commercial banks, such as the China Merchant Banks, um, will obviously find it hard um, to obviously offer these rates um, to mm. obviously some of these lenders. What do you make, I guess, of the policy response here? I mean, aside from reduction of lending rates, the um, authorities in China are also encouraging many banks to lend more um, at a time when, you know, demand on the demand side, people aren't taking up more loans. A lot of them have mortgages on properties that are yet to be completed um, in what many have said is a multi-decade property boom in China. Uh, and, uh, you know, if one thinks about what has happened to Evergrande, 
what has happened to local government financing vehicles, many of whom are heavily indebted. Uh, it seems, you know, the uh, Communist Party of China government is quite alive to what implications a financial and a systemic financial disaster might have uh, for an economy that in some parts is still under heavy lockdowns, uh, still grappling with COVID-19. Mm. Yeah, so one of the state banks, um, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, um, recently reported in terms of some of the earnings. So they saw a slowing particular earnings growth um, after being obviously worked by the central bank to offer support to the derailing um, economy. But the private um, commercial banks that I was talking about earlier on, such as your China military bank, um, unfortunately, they have seen non-performing loans um, increase, um, particularly in the real estate, and um, obviously double, particularly in the sector, and they are obviously affecting them more. And um, some of these, obviously, private commercial banks um, do have more um, loans, particularly to the real estate sector. Um, so like the China Merchants Bank, the commercial and private bank, um, has dipped under 10%, whereas the China um, state-owned banks um, have in excess of, well, at most, about 5%. Um, so, yeah, these non-performing loans are increasing and are reaching um, record highs. Um, and obviously, this will obviously impact the economy going forward. Mm, mm. And I guess uh, just the implications, of course, of... Uh uh, if indeed a systemic financial crisis would unfold in China, I mean, uh, whenever we talk about any sector, even here at home, you, you might be talking mm-hmm. about aluminium, you might be talking about mining, you might be talking about, you know, uh, uh, any, even just broad manufacturing, uh, the impact of China as a source of demand. Mm-hmm. Wh- what might the impact be of a financial crisis on not only consumer, but even, I guess, firm level demand? Uh, for anything from, you know, mined inputs right through to uh, maybe manufactured products that might come from a country like South Africa? Yeah, so um, in particular in the recent numbers, we've seen a lot of forecasts, particularly coming to the um, China's economy. Some forecasts indicate there will be an economic growth of, of about 3.5% this year, um, where the official target they were targeting 5.5%. So the sectors that you are um, obviously mentioning, such as your resources, um, such as your car industry, will come mm. under significant pressures. Um, because as we know, um, a lot of um, labor takes place, particularly within the region. Um, and obviously, we've seen the chip manufacturing um, challenges that have taken place in, in the last year or so. Um, and these sectors, particularly resources, will come under significant pressure because there won't be that much industrialization taking place. Um, and obviously, the, what, happen, what has happened, uh, particularly in the start of the year, where a lot of the uh, manufacturing companies are closed um, Employees were tasked to um, work and sleep at work. Some of the stories that were coming out earlier this year. Um, so it will have a ripple effect, particularly not just um, South Africa, but globally, um, because we do know that um, this is the second biggest economy that we're speaking of. Um, and obviously, it will have a ripple effect, not only to um, the resources sector, but also the tech sector. Um, mm. We know they do produce some of the biggest firms that. And um, that we obviously uh, are quite familiar with. Um, that's why brands such as iPhone obviously diversifying that manufacturing, um, particularly that production of manufacturing of particular phones um, to other um, areas such as India. Yeah, yeah. And then let's shift our attention away from that one and uh, take a look at the super group. Now, um, you know, a lot of people might not even know who the super group is. So let's maybe start there. I mean, these are guys, uh, many people maybe might have seen their cleaning operations, facilities management and so on, you know. But uh, they're associated with so many other spaces. I mean, MDS couriers, um, mm-hmm. you know, SG, mobility. They're also out in the world of transportation of coal. 
uh, of other bulk stuff. Uh, they also run dealerships. Um, and yeah. uh, if you think of uh, dealerships, you know, of, um, yeah, let me maybe just take a look in Gauteng, of anything from Sherry, Citroen, Jeep, Jaguar, Suzuki, Toyota, UD, Trucks, Volvo. Uh, they are in all Ford. of those spaces. Yeah. Um, mm. And yeah, putting out a very good set of numbers here. Uh, and I must say, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, um, strong top line showing, strong, you know, cash generation. And uh, uh, really, I guess, um, probably one of those examples of the benefits of diversification and also declaring a dividend increase of around 34% as well. NAV up just shy of 20%. All in all, a good set of numbers here. Very good set of numbers. Um, and for many of the listeners that aren't aware who Supergroup is, it's a logistics company, um, Supergroup. And as you mentioned, um, having an excess of particularly in South Africa, about 51 dealerships, um, some of the names which you have mentioned. Um, but today the group did report a um, decent set of results for the financial year ending June. Um, the CEO did indicate that they are currently operating in an extremely difficult um, environment due to the volatility. Um, however, the group did see revenue increase by 17% year on year um, to just um, above 46.2 billion rand. Um, in terms of some of the operations, um, they do have operations in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, Australasia, Europe, and the UK. Um, and they saw revenue on that side, particularly in divisions outside of South Africa, um, coming up by 51%, increasing by 51%. And they've been also, as you indicated, very diversified. And they continue to diversify in terms of regions and their revenue streams. So um, the latest, particularly the latest business, um, particularly acquisitions, uh, was the completion of the uh, the lease plan um, deal, particularly in September of um, last year, where they um, completed acquisition of a lease plan in September of last year, about 6.6 billion, um, which is a division or business which is obviously down the alley and um, providing fleet management and leasing services um, in the regions of Australia and New Zealand. Um, so very much indicating today in the numbers that the new business that they did um, conclude last year in September, it, and obviously in terms of some of the strong numbers that businesses, uh, that businesses has been able to deliver, particularly in the um, green economic backdrop that, that, that they currently see. Um, so the group obviously um, having some decent numbers, um, outperforming in all respective periods. Um, but I think what was most pertinent coming out of the numbers was they've been able to also shift prices swiftly um, through the challenges. So they delivered a, a set of good numbers despite the recent flooding um, that did take place in case of any of this year. Um, and also as a result of the disruption, um, in particularly the, um, the load shedding that has taken place here to date. And also indicating that they also lost a lot of stock and vehicle losses due to the unrest in KZN um, last year, indicating they um, forgone already about $97.5 billion, um, which obviously did um, hurt, but obviously didn't impact the numbers too significantly. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, let's shift our attention, I guess, to Old Mutual. Uh, they say the first set of numbers they've put out since, um, you know, that um, uh, unbundling of the investment out in Nedbank. Um, and uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, having read and gone through these numbers, I, I wasn't really sure what to make of them. Uh, but let's maybe just start on that value of new business figure and the margins on some of the new business, um, which also grew in negative terms, uh, uh, which means it didn't grow. But also, I guess, funds under management also, uh, you know, um, uh, also not growing in any significant terms. Uh, What, in your view, I guess, are some of the key metrics in uh, this release here that give a story of uh, effectively what's happening in this particular business? 
Yes, so the insurer of Mutual um, provided the affordability of the products um, particularly coming to the mm. customers. Um, we saw the old mutual personal financing business um, coming under significant strain, so indicating that a lot of the products, um, the CEO indicating that um, a lot of the um, retirement and unity products, a lot of the, um, the customers aren't taking those up um, as, as previously that um, customers would take up, um, whereas customers are more shifting towards more simple products such as your math policies. Um, or Mark Romano, which we are very much mm. aware of, and mm. obviously very much patient particularly in that department. And also, I think where uh, a lot of um, competition has taken place in the insurance sector, um, we all saw the impact a lot of businesses were impacted in terms of the insurance, um, where a lot of the insurance didn't want to pay out, um, and also the natural disasters that we've had um, in KZN starting with this year. So um, these insurers are going to have to like, think of um, the global warming impacts that are, are very much present and we are currently seeing them in South Africa, but in terms of also um, cases in terms of the, the South African consumer and just niching down and scaling down those products um, to make them uncomplicated um, because this particular division, the personal finance, unfortunately is coming under significant strain. The markets, you know, I think a lot of people would know, I mean, Old Mutual left South African shores uh, for offshore listing in London in the 1990s. The market they returned to was much more competitive in the different market segments they operate, least of all the mass market that they're now trying to operate in, mass retail sort of of, uh, insurance and all manner of cover products. Um, Is that maybe something else that might account for this mixed bag of numbers here, that... um, um, the significant margin pressure on the back of a very competitive environment. Definitely, I think um, the insurance space has become increasingly uh, competitive. Um, it's not just the big insurers that were present pre our democracy, but it has come to very much a new private companies and other insurers coming into the market and taking up particularly that market that they used to be very much dominant in. Um, and also just the preferences in terms of the consumer. Um, the consumer previously in terms of financial education and literacy wasn't as um, at, a, at, at, at the level that it should be. Uh, but I think they have more of an option now to go to other um, particularly asset managers or um, other retail product offerings that other boutique firms um, that have come into the market um, in particular in the last 20 to 25 years. Mm-hmm. Then, then I guess the, the, the other sort of big question mark that uh, one might say arises uh, from this is um, whether or not, uh, on the back of what we heard earlier on this week, you know, Comcom, uh, some investigations into collusive activity, that might be a drain on their numbers, just briefly. Yeah, so, or future um, numbers, CEO, I should say. Yeah, yeah so the CEO, um, Ian Wilson, did indicate um, that they all mutual will fully cooperate um, with the uh, Competition Commission um, investigation that is um, obviously taking place um, for the listeners that are aware, Competition Commission rated a few of the insurers, particularly eight of the major insurers um, last week um, for a possible price collusion. Um, so uh, if it is true and the Competition Commission does find proof that there has been irregularities by some of these insurers, um, mm. some of these members, particularly um, within the personal financing division, could come under significant strength. So. And then it's in, Elon Musk? Yeah, it's going round and around and around. So I think in terms of the latest, um, we saw a lawyer for Elon Musk send a new letter particularly to Twitter, uh, to Twitter um, again seeking to terminate um, 
the 44 billion agreement to buy the social media platform. However, this time in the new letter, citing the recent allegations um, by the whistleblower, which is Twitter's former chief security officer, um, who's indicating that they are very much, very much low um, uh, privacy um, criteria um, and flaws um, to hackers and privacy issues um, coming to Twitter. Um, so this is obviously coming from a new letter. Um, this was obviously, we know, comes from the initial letter which was sent to Twitter um, on the 8th of July, thinking to abide in the deal. Um, but the initial letter was obviously on concerns of Twitter um, numbers and the user profiles and fake and spam accounts and so forth. Um, but I think with regards to the new whistleblower that has come to, which, uh, who has been obviously subpoenaed by both legal teams, um, Twitter and Elon Musk lawyers, um, so we wait for how this particular one turns out. Um, but this one will obviously take place uh, in a five-day non-jury trial, which is scheduled to take place um, in Delaware in October. Um, so we hope in October, when that five-day trial does take place, um, there is a finality in terms of what comes out of it, because this has been going on for quite a while now. Yeah, we're going to have to leave it here for tonight. Uh, always a pleasure catching up with you, Akona. Thank you very much for your time. Akona Mlamleli, Portfolio Manager out at 274 Investment Managers, helping us with our wrap of the top business stories. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, Operation Tutula.